Hello, welcome to Conversations with the Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Bueno. I really appreciate you tuning in today. Today's guest is somebody who I've been admiring for, gosh, I don't know how many years now, but for the past at least five or six years, I've watched her grow in the scene and have been admiring her career. And now I actually got to have a conversation with her. So I'm really, really excited to share this with you today. So today's guest is Dr. Lissa Rankin, and she was born in Florida and is a New York Times bestselling author of The Daily Flame, Mind Over Medicine, The Fear Cure, and Anatomy of a Calling. She's also a physician, speaker, and founder of Whole Health Medicine Institute. And that is a very short, very incomplete bio that doesn't encapsulate all of the amazingness that Lissa is in the world. So please sit back, relax, and listen to all of the amazing, what's the word, I don't know. I got my mind blown by this interview. And actually, truthfully, as I'm recording this intro right now, I'm going to be seeing my therapist today and talking about a ton of stuff that Lissa and I talked about in this interview, kind of deepening my awareness of some of the things that she shed light on for me. So I hope the same happens for you. Enjoy. Hello, Lissa Rankin. I'm so excited to have you here. Hi, I'm so delighted to be here. Thank you so much. So can I tell the folks how this came to be? Sure. Yeah. So you'll hear all about Lissa. She's an amazing woman, a force of good in the world. And I had interviewed Chris Grasso and he's awesome. And I know you and he are friends. And so I thought, oh, I should probably reach out to Lissa. So I go on your website and I see Lissa's not accepting any requests for interviews right now, but check back later. And so I'm like, okay, whatever. No problem. And then a week later, I went to the ASAP conference and you were there. (laughs) I was like, universe, okay, clearly we do have to talk. As I said, I'm deep in the middle of writing my seventh book, Sacred Medicine. So I'm sort of in the bubble, but you entered the bubble because we were both at ASAP. I know. Yeah, it was so exciting. And I was I was literally like sitting on a couch looking at my phone going, is that who I think it is? Googling you. <laughs> <laughs> so I just really appreciate your openness. Yeah, I was just kind of camped out on the couch doing interviews for my book. So yeah. So here we are. Thank you, Chris. I know, I know right? Yeah, because I totally name dropped. And Chris was like, it's cool. (laughs) So I don't know how you best describe yourself. I'd love to hear the way that you describe who you are and what you do. Gosh, I'm terrible at it. In (laughs) fact, the branding companies literally Mm. use me as the poster child for how not to brand yourself. Hilarious. Yeah. No, seriously, I don't sound bite well. I've written seven books about seven completely different topics. Everything from encaustic painting art school textbook because... Oh, I'm really? a professional artist. Right. To vaginas, to fear, to spirituality, to your soul's purpose and finding your calling, to mm-hmm. energy healing. So sort of all over the map. But my background is as OBGYN physician. So everything kind of revolves at some level around what I call whole health, mm-hmm. which is sort of ten facets of being human and how to live in alignment with what I call your inner pilot light. And that applies to whether you're on a healing journey, wrestling with illness or injury or trauma, or if you're trying to find your calling or express yourself creatively or live in transformational relationships as an alchemical process. That whole health concept applies to everything from 
kind of divine abundance Mm -hmm. to mental health, to curing the body. So that's what I mean. There's sort of an overarching theme of my work, but it can look really fragmented like I have ADD. (laughs) Well, it just sounds to me like you're really doing everything that your heart desires. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm recording music CDs. I make raw chocolate. I express myself creatively in a whole lot of different ways. And I really care about hacking healing and trying to figure out what we can do to facilitate people's self-healing journeys. And when I say self-healing, I don't mean you you can do it alone. I think it's a paradox Mm -hmm. that the body can heal itself and we can't do it alone. But to find the things that I didn't get taught in medical school, not to dismiss anything that I was taught in medical school, but to expand the horizon of what are the tools in the medicine bag that optimize whole health. And like I said, for me, that includes things like connecting spiritually and living in healthy community and having soul enlivening relationships and finding your calling. So my definition of health is very expanded. Yeah. (laughs) And it's evidence-based. My book, Mind Over Medicine, which is the one most Mm -hmm. people know me by, has all the geek data proving that that's not just some sort of new age concept, that it's evidence-based. Right. I actually have your whole health Karen image right in front of me because I'm going to be doing a bunch of talks this year about social workers doing their own work and talking Uh about like, you have to go to therapy if you're a therapist. You just have to. (laughs) I go to therapy once a week. Yeah, right. (laughs) I am in therapy. And I think if you are, especially if you're in the public eye Mm -hmm. the way I am, everything about that path will mess you up if you don't have the right people holding you accountable to not abusing your power, really not letting the press get to you. (laughs) Yeah, I'm curious. We talked about this a little bit when we were at the conference together. It feels like it's so easy to listen to people who say, well, I know how you should brand yourself. I know how you should market yourself. I know what products you should be selling. I can't even imagine what that pull must feel like to be like, okay, sure, these people know what they're saying and they're saying I can make a lot of money. And then also, I'm sure for you, there was like this internal feeling of, whoa, Well, you know, I come from a background where I was in a career already where I had a lot of power. And it's a career Mm -hmm. where a lot of people abuse their power. So a lot of doctors are not using their power responsibly. And it's not their fault. They're literally trained that way. (laughs) Yes, yes, they are. We are trained that way. So Mm -hmm. I have had to do a lot of therapy around using my power responsibly. But it's really interesting when you start to get into this kind of field where you're keynoting conferences and writing best-selling books. And I've done two PBS specials and four TED Talks. And I teach workshops Mm -hmm. at retreat centers and kind of whatever you call that job. (laughs) Yeah. And it's very strange because, as it turns out, a lot of the people who make their money off of people like me mm-hmm. are used to manipulating people like me yeah. in order to make money through a variety of hooks that I have had to learn to identify and unhook from. So, for example, mm. well, you can make millions of dollars. Well, I don't care about money. I don't need yeah. to make millions of dollars. I just need to pay the rent. I don't even own my house. I have a relatively modest lifestyle. So if you don't care about money and you you only care about, you know, having a nice enough life, but you don't need to be one of those people that's accumulating and hoarding money, then mm-hmm. you can unhook from the money hook. 
But then there's the, well, what about, you know, fame, approval, validation? <laughs> if you're one of those people that grew up feeling not good enough, yeah. then there's a whole bunch of hooks around getting approval from other people. How many Facebook fans do I have? How many people are on my newsletter list? How many right. people have read my book? Or how many good reviews mm-hmm. did I get? Or whatever. And if you have an inner sense of worthiness and you really do the work to claim your space in the world and have that come from inside, then you can unhook from that. And then there's a whole bunch of other really subtle hooks, like I had to work on my savior complex. Oh, yeah, yeah. If I said no to things that people wanted me to do because they wanted to make a lot of money off of me, if all of the other hooks kind of failed... Then they would say, but think of the millions of people that you could save if you took this. uh, This is a true example. If you took this starring role in a network primetime television Mm -hmm. show where you'd be like the Simon Cowell of alternative medicine, right? Millions of people would get their cancer cured. And I'm going, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've already treated my savior complex. Yeah. I don't need to treat millions of people. It's okay if I just help one. Yeah. Because I'm enough the way I am. And so at some point when you've identified and unhooked from all those things, then you can actually be free to just do your healing work where you're a vessel of divine love in the world, period. Mm-hmm. Where it's yours to do. And it comes from an internal compass or guidance system that I call your inner pilot light, your intuition, whatever you want to call it. We all have it. Mm-hmm. And so now it's simply, you know, am I supposed to engage with this thing in the world? Yes or no. So when you ask me to be on this podcast, I'm not doing interviews right now. Yeah. When I check in with my internal compass, it says yes to this. Okay. Mm-hmm. So here we are. <laughs> oh, and I feel very blessed. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Me too. If people don't already receive the inner pilot light emails, they're so lovely. And often it's just what I needed to hear in the right moment, which also Mm. speaks to me about like the collective unconscious. There has to be something because otherwise, why would we all resonate with something at the same time? You know, I can't tell you how many people say that to this email. I've been I've been writing it for 10 years. In fact, I just turned 50 and I started it on my 40th birthday. So it literally just was 10 years and I just published my sixth book, The Daily Flame, which is 365 of those letters that I wrote brand new while my mother was dying. So that's kind of like for people that want to binge on The Daily Flame. But for me, it started as a personal practice, just checking in with that divine essence of myself Mm -hmm. with, okay, inner pilot light, what do I need to know today? And I started, I'm a writer. I've been a writer my whole life. So Mm -hmm. writing comes really easily for me. It can sort of bypass my mind. Like something comes through my fingers on the computer that I'm not thinking up. And the stuff that was coming through, I was like, you know, it was giving me very particular and specific guidance to do things that sounded pretty nuts, like quit my job as a doctor Mm -hmm. and leave the hospital. So I started it as a daily practice, but I shared what I was writing with some of my friends and they were like, oh my God, how did your inner pilot light know exactly what I needed to hear today? Yeah. And I think of it as so individual, but I mean, it makes sense that this divine spark in me that's connected to the divine spark in everybody is kind of vibrating or resonating in some sort of universal way that is tuned into the collective consciousness. So I, at some point, thought, well, maybe other people would find what I'm writing for myself useful. And I started Mm -hmm. this daily free email. And it's super cute because people write back to the inner pilot, like, dear inner pilot, like, it's super cute. It touches my heart all the time. So we have, I've been doing this for 10 years now, but it is a lovely practice to just kind of 
feel into what does the collective need to hear today. Mm-hmm. I can still get very specific personal guidance, like say yes to Sarah. And that might not be useful in the Daily Flame. Right, you know, everybody's right. looking for a Sarah to say yes right. to. <laughs> yeah. But, the, you know, there are things that seem to be kind of human frailties almost. I think of them as like love letters from your soul to your ego almost or, or to yep. your parts, which is yeah. I really love internal family systems, IFS and yeah. the parts work sort of. Our parts can get really agitated. And mm-hmm. so this loving inner parent, mentor, healer, teacher, guide can tend to those parts in a way that's love in both sort of the sanctuary and the refuge and comfort, but it's also sometimes fierce love or mm-hmm. a kind of firm boundary setting like, no, we're not going to be doing that today. Right. You know? It's a complete kind of unconditional love. Yeah. And I'm curious because when you said it's speaking from your your higher self to your ego, and as you were talking about people writing back to the inner pilot light, I feel like that would also potentially be a hook too, where the savior complex might come in or getting that external validation from people. There's such a fine line, I think, between taking it in, in your higher self and your soul and taking it in from your ego, right? Well, I don't even read those letters. This is the mm. thing. I have an amazing assistant named Pearl. <gasps> Pearl is I get, so sweet. <laughs> she is. She's amazing. Yeah. And I get hundreds of letters like that every day, but I don't read my comments. I don't read mm-hmm. my emails. Every now and then Pearl will screen one of the emails and say, you really need to hear this. But that's part mm. of what I mean by not believing your own press. Like yeah. A celebrity gave me really good advice early on and said, protect yourself from the feedback because Mm -hmm. both the criticism and the praise is not yours. It's just a projection of the person who's writing it, a sort Mm. of disowned part of Mm themselves. And if you take the praise, you also have to take the criticism. And if you're seeking praise and trying to avoid criticism, you're not going to be putting forth your truth in the world. And that was really good advice. And I feel sort of bad because people make a concerted effort to express themselves personally to me, Mm -hmm. often in very praising ways. And I get presents in my post office box from people that are so grateful because they feel like I've saved their life or whatever. But I tend to sort of protect myself from that because I'm just here to do my part. And I don't want anybody putting me on a pedestal. And I don't don't really need, as my teacher, Rachel Naomi Renan said to me, she said, Lisa, Approval is just another form of judgment. It's positive judgment rather than negative judgment, but it can be taken away in a flash. Mm -hmm. And if you're living your life trying to get approval and avoid criticism, you know, again, you're not free. Right. I mean, it's weird. You know, obviously part of me loves the approval, but part of me knows that it's kind of good for me to protect myself from it. Yeah. I mean, you see a lot of people in this line of work who are really divas, Yeah, yeah. you know, and they're, mm-hmm. they really feel entitled to being treated special. The whole system feeds that. We kind of want our gurus. We want to think yeah. like perfect mommy or perfect daddy up there on the pedestal. I guarantee you, I am not perfect. You can ask my husband. <laughs> <laughs> I always say that too. Like my husband will tell you everything that's wrong with me. Oh yeah. <laughs> Trust me, mm-hmm. my husband will tell you, absolutely. I don't believe there is a perfect human. I don't really yeah. believe in what some people call enlightenment anymore. I've met all mm. those quote-unquote enlightened people, and trust me, every one of them, including some of the most famous ones you can think of, mm-hmm. have their shadow. Right. And 
I find that not disillusioning, but comforting. In yes. A way. It's like, oh, thank God. We can take that off the ego's list of how to become a perfect human. Right. Oh, you. Absolutely. And we can just do our, what we're here to do. Mm-hmm. One of the greatest gifts of this podcast is that I'll do the interview and I, I don't take any notes while I'm interviewing because I really want to be present and want to hear everything. And then I go listen back later so that I can write the notes for the episode. And there's always a gift in it. And I can already, you've already given me a lot of gifts that I'm going to be listening back and writing all these things down and then going to my therapist to talk about. (laughs) I feel like I'm kind of at that beginning place in my journey where I am having more of a platform and getting on a stage. And one of the things that I have really struggled with is the fear of criticism. And what I recognized in a therapy session recently was that's an old part. It's the teenage self. who did get criticized because I was crazy back then because who isn't when you're in seventh grade Uh and now I'm able to discern between constructive criticism from people who know me and know the things that I need to work on and are calling me on that versus people just bitching well you know I love what Brene Brown says about that she quotes the Teddy Roosevelt quote about being in the arena Mm -hmm. and daring greatly right yeah but she says she basically does not take any feedback from anybody who is not themselves in the arena. Right. Right. So there's a whole lot of armchair bitching going on on social (laughs) media from people who Mm -hmm. are hiding under anonymity and they're just enraged. They're just looking for a place to vent their rage. And like I said, I don't read my comments, but somebody made a YouTube comment. YouTube seems to be the worst. Some YouTube Mm. comment on one of my TED Talks. It's like, why would I take advice from this fat doctor? Right. It's like... Like, why? Why even say something like that? Like, so if somebody is really sensitive to that sort of thing, then you're going to get brutalized if you put yourself out there to do what you're here to do. Right. But why do I care what some angry person who just wants to be mean has to say about me? But I think, as you said, the trap. If people say, well, then, you know, fuck it. I don't care what anybody says. And Mm -hmm. I'm going to just protect myself from all feedback. And that is a dangerous trap. Yeah. Because I know I have a circle of at least 20 people who are badass and brave and they are willing Mm -hmm. to call me on my stuff. And if I were to become one of those out-of-control divas abusing their power and refusing to eat anything but green M&Ms in the green room... (laughs) They would be on my case so quickly, and I've I've empowered them all to do so. I've told them, I want that. Please let me know if I get off track. And that's part of what my 75-year-old therapist does, but it's also Mm -hmm. what my friends do. Like, I have really good friends. People who are walking the walk beside you. Yeah. Absolutely. And they are other imperfect human beings. And we have mutual agreements to, as I said, for me, the definition of love is both refuge and comfort and sanctuary, like this place where you can just be held in your imperfection and your parts can feel safe. But it also includes like, hey, what the hell are you doing? Mm -hmm. Wake up. You just Mm -hmm. fell asleep and did something unconscious. Right. So that's also love. So I appreciate the people that are brave enough to challenge me because a lot of people aren't brave enough to challenge people in positions of great power Mm -hmm. because they want something from them and they don't want to trigger them. Mm -hmm. That's how the yes men thing gets built, isn't it? Exactly. And I see that. I see that a lot of people surround themselves with disempowered yes men who Mm. just feed the beast rather than challenging what's happening. 
And that's how cults get formed. Ugh. Yeah, I just <laughs> ended a situation in the not so distant past that I was getting feedback from people in my life like, this doesn't sound right. Like, this doesn't sound like you. And then one day I kind of woke up and realized, oh, yeah, this other person has a bunch of yes men around him. And I mm -hmm. wasn't doing that. And that's why there was conflict. And yeah, that's another yeah. gift you just gave me. Well, that's mm. where the Me Too movement comes from, right? Yeah. It's like yeah. people who want something often yeah. from someone in a position of power. I mean, I'm not in at all into sort of blame the victim, but the way Me Too started was all these movie stars that were mm -hmm. speaking up against movie producers. Mm -hmm. Well, part of the pattern is they wanted something from that movie producer. Right. They, you know, right. these are star makers. So if we're attached to getting something from someone in a position of power, then we may not protect ourselves. Right. From the harms that can come from somebody who's surrounded by yes men or women mm -hmm. and abusing their power. And even on the micro level, just a woman with a man who has some whatever level of power over her, not even necessarily like a movie star or anything like that, but just the desire to feel special and to feel loved Absolutely. coming from that place of lack. That's still an abuse of power that I think men need to realize Absolutely. Well, again, men and women, yes, but yes. we're certainly seeing it more with men. And what makes me crazy, I have a part that I call the integrity police, and it gets extremely <laughs> righteous and judgmental yes! against people like John of God and right now Tony mm -hmm. Robbins and all these, right. these people who are allegedly healers. And a lot of people are speaking out claiming, and of course, this is just the court of public opinion, but mm -hmm. claiming that they have been sexually mistreated by mm -hmm. people in positions of supposedly healing. But that happens. I mean, I'm seven years into researching this book, Sacred Medicine, and I almost quit three years in. Really? Because, well, I think I was very naive. I had a part that was like very sort of innocent and unaware and kind of thought, well, I'm going to go into this territory of shamans and gurus and energy healers and Qigong masters and Balinese healers and kahunas in Hawaii and all of this. And I'm going to experience all these sort of magical, mystical, miraculous experiences, mm -hmm. which did happen, but it came riding shotgun with having to call those shamans and say, quit raping your clients. Mm -hmm. Jesus. Yeah. Wow. So that was a big wake up call for me. And it was such a scary shadow. I felt threatened. Mm. So I almost quit, wow. but I didn't. I fortunately found the people that have circles of ethical people around them, mm -hmm. keeping them in check, who are also doing magical, mysterious things. Well, I was just having a conversation yesterday with a woman who practices a bunch of different modalities, but shamanism, and she calls herself a coach, essentially, because there's no other nomenclature to put around it. And we were discussing therapists and medical professionals. We can often cringe at the term coach because it's not regulated. But at the same time, there are therapists who are raping their clients. There are doctors who are misusing their power, as you said before. So I'll tell you the difference. The mm -hmm. difference is that they have medical boards. So anybody can anonymously turn in their doctor or their therapist mm -hmm. to the regulatory mm -hmm. boards and an investigation will happen. So I got turned in once by a woman oh, wow. who swears that I stole her labia. Oh. Now, she was a paranoid schizophrenic. Okay. She, she sued me in court. She turned me wow. into the medical board. But I still had to go through an entire investigation mm -hmm. to make sure that I wasn't harming this woman. Yeah, wow. That's good. I mean, that's good. It's good that anybody can do that. Whereas the women that were calling me, telling me that the shaman had sexually abused them during a session, there's nobody to call. 
So I yeah. could be a whistleblower and ruin his career on the Internet, mm-hmm. but that doesn't feel like mine to do. And they weren't willing to press criminal charges. So mm-hmm. there's no board. You know, if there was a board, mm-hmm. they could call and say, investigate this guy. He's not safe. Right. That's the difference. So when people ask me, how do I find a healer that is safe? I actually tell them, find somebody with an MD or a PhD because there's plenty Mm -hmm. of them. Yeah, yeah. And then at least they have oversight. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. Absolutely. Whereas coaching, as you said, or anybody can hang up a shingle and say, I'm a shaman. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that those people aren't gifted, but it may mean that they've had absolutely no education in professional ethics. Right. The really good schools that are teaching energy healing, for example, they all include teaching ethics. But again, there is mm-hmm. no regulatory board. So if they violate those ethics, then there's no accountability. There's no way to take away their license, for example. Mm-hmm. Whereas mm-hmm. if your therapist abuses power and has sex with you, that is a sort of impeachable offense. Mm-hmm. They will lose their license if someone calls it out to the board and finds out that there's some validity to it. Right. Absolutely. And still, though, I guess that's putting the victim in a place of needing to act on that. And sometimes they won't. And that's such a shame. It's really hard time right now. It is. And that's the tide that's turning right now is Mm -hmm. people are feeling empowered by coming together. Like one person Mm -hmm. may not feel safe speaking up, but when 10 people speak up, then 10 more speak up. And next thing you know, you've got 300 people saying John of God hurt them. Yeah, I haven't read anything about that particular incident, but I keep hearing about it. So Yeah, it's in the New York Times. And he's yeah. in he's in police custody, so we have Oof. to assume that there's something there. Right, right. It's not just a rumor. Yeah. Well, I'd love to shift into the question of whether or not you see yourself as a healer. Hmm. Well, I guess it depends on what you call a healer. I think we're all healers. I think we all have that human potential. I mean, I was just reading some of the science of energy healing yesterday in Oshman's book called Energy Medicine, which is fascinating. Mm -hmm. He's talking about the human capacity that maybe as an organism, we were given a gift of being able to attune to the alpha brain waves in our own brains and entrain into Schumann's resonance in the earth. And that when we're in that state, we can entrain other people into that same resonance, which can impact and regulate the living matrix of all of the body's hmm. system. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Yeah, I love that in a way I can't even describe because it puts together a lot of sort of disparate things. Like mm-hmm. when I was working with the shamans in Peru at 16,000 feet in the Andes with the Karos, one of the things that they regularly do is they gather together the whole tribe and they sit on the ground and they do despacho ceremony, which is a kind of offering practice. It's a ritual, kind of making a mandala and the whole tribe is involved. Mm. It takes hours and it's sort of this beautiful ritual. But when you think about it, what happens in ritual is we often go into liminal space, which mm-hmm. is often engaging the alpha brainwave states. And they're sitting on the earth, Mm. right? And they're doing a Mother Earth gratitude practice. And Mm -hmm. think about that. They literally may have built into their culture, without knowing the science of it at all, a way to engage Schumann's resonance and training their own brains to fix whatever might be needing fixing in their own bodies on a regular basis. That's so Mm -hmm. super cool. So am I a healer that way? Yes. I don't see patients. I don't see clients and do healing sessions anymore, so I don't 
hang up a shingle and say, I'm a healer, pay me mm-hmm. X amount of dollars for a session with me because the only way that I work one-on-one with people anymore is through a mentoring program that I do. But I certainly care about healing. And I know that, for example, all of the group work that I do when I'm teaching mm-hmm. the Whole Health Medicine Institute to healthcare providers or when I'm doing retreats at places like Esalen or I just got back from Kripalu or even when I'm on stage doing keynotes, I'm doing healing work. I just came back from doing a wonderful event in Woodstock, New York with a nonprofit that is trying to create a model that might be reproducible where healers who offer services that aren't covered by insurance, people like energy healers Mm -hmm. or craniosacral therapists or spiritual counselors or energy psychologists Mm -hmm. or acupuncturists and things like that Mm -hmm. are coming together and volunteering their time once a month to give free sessions to the people in their small town. Mm -hmm. And they're serving about 60 people a month doing these free sessions. And so they brought me in and someone, they got a grant to like buy everybody a free book. So everybody Mm -hmm. who came to this church got one of my Daily Flame books And Mm. I had two hours to facilitate a group healing. And it was so lovely. And I mean, that is some of the most precious work that I do. I run an online program called the Healing Soul Tribe. And part of what we're Mm. trying to do is amplify that. I don't Mm -hmm. travel much because I have a 13-year-old daughter and I don't want to leave her. But I would love to find a way to sort of train group leaders or create a structure that is as reproducible as, for example, 12-step is for recovery. Yeah. I mean, in Marin County, where I live, like, you can go to a 12-step meeting every hour. And pretty much you can be guaranteed to get the same kind of thing. Whether you're 12-stepping, you know, codependence or alcoholism Mm -hmm. or whatever, being in relationship with any sort of compulsive behavior. But there's nothing like that for people that are identifying not as an addict or a person in relationship to an addict, but as somebody who is sick or injured or recovering from trauma. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of my vision is how can we amplify and take this out of the realm of being a luxury good. Right Right now it's a luxury good. If you have Mm -hmm. cash and you Mm -hmm. can pay cash or if you can afford to go to a retreat or something like that. But this nonprofit in Woodstock is trying to change that. How do we make this a public health phenomenon because we care about our community and the healers are getting something out of it because they're getting community with each other when they come together. And many of these people have felt very isolated and kind of rejected by the conventional medical community and sort of on the fringe. They often feel really strange. They have unusual gifts that other people may not understand Mm -hmm. or may sort of even be frightened of or demonize or think they're quacks or reject that there's any validity to what they're doing. So they're sort of getting the camaraderie of coming together and being of service and having their gifts really appreciated by the people that Mm -hmm. are receiving them. So I think I'm excited to see little seeds and sparks of that sort of thing happening as a way to restore the natural human potential of humans to heal each other in community. Mm -hmm. I I think one of the things I've learned from my studies of sacred medicine is that we may be doing a grave disservice even by having things like HIPAA laws that make us Mm. see private patients one-on-one in an office because there's data suggesting that part of the placebo effect may be the community effect. Hmm. That if we gather in community and we're bonded in some way, Mm -hmm. that if one person in the bonded group gets cured, then through what Bill Bankston calls resonant bonding, through that bonding, 
somebody else might be able to also get cured in ways that we don't fully understand right now. That's AA. So <laughs> That's exactly what it is. Exactly. Yeah. But it's also Lourdes. It's places mm-hmm. like, you know, yeah. the Casa where John of God was seeing people. All these people mm-hmm. are coming together with the intention of healing. Mm-hmm. And Lourdes has been tracking the miracles, you know, mm-hmm. for years because they want to prove that it's not placebo effect. <laughs> That it's divine intervention. But I think, wow, why are we not proactively facilitating mm-hmm. that group healing? That if it's possible for even one person in the group, then it becomes more possible in some mysterious way for others. Mm-hmm. So that excites me because that's also yeah. scalable. Right, right. And I mean, I just think about it's our individualistic culture and our reliance on the hard science facts. And it makes me think of the science of spiritual awakening. Have you heard of that? By Steve Taylor. It's fascinating. And what he made me really realize is that we started off being indigenous and only having our intuition and our connection to nature and developing these rituals and healing ourselves that way. And then there was a, a fall of consciousness. And then we had to have science to explain everything. And as we've learned more about science and we're bringing the consciousness and the indigenous practices kind of back in that combination is so powerful. And like, as you were talking about the energy medicine, science, they just haven't figured it out yet. It doesn't mean that it's not true and that it's not explainable by science, but it's just a different way than we understand it (laughs) thus far. It's a really cool book because he talks about the different ways that people come to spiritual awakening. And it makes me think of your book as I was reading it, just kind of thinking about I really related to the idea of, I know that I have a calling. I kind of know what it is, but I have no idea what it's going to look like. And there had to be for you, and I had a similar experience as well, some sort of crisis in order to kind of like get that awakening and be like, oh, no, I'm not on my path and then kind of reroute. But he also talks about people who just are awakened as children and then people who awaken not through tragedy or crisis, but through they just kind of magically have an awakening one day. So it's it's fascinating. Yeah, that sounds like a great book. I'll have to make a note. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm curious your thoughts on the term wounded healer in relation to yourself. I mean, it's definitely an archetype that I work with a lot in myself. And because I run a training program for mostly doctors, I'm very familiar with Mm -hmm. that archetype in doctors in general, mm-hmm. and certainly in other healers as well, but it, it shows up in a particular flavor in people who had conventional medical training, particularly the surgical specialties like OBGYN or mm-hmm. any surgical specialty. Mm-hmm. Those are the worst. <laughs> yes, yes. Because I think it's not only that the training wounds you, it's that you, I think now, you have to kind of be wounded beforehand to even be willing to endure that kind yeah. of abuse. Yeah. So most of us have had childhood wounding or boundary injuries early that made us vulnerable to not mm-hmm. recognizing where the line of abuse lives. Mm. And so we have kind of developed masochistic defense mm-hmm. strategies and it's glorified in the name of being the savior, right? right? So the payback of what you get from self-abusing or letting yourself be abused in order to facilitate healing in other people is Mm -hmm. you get the hit of I saved their life. 
Yep. which is a big hit. And of course, mm-hmm. it's not yours. Like one of the biggest moments of therapeutic intervention that I remember was when I was actually being a client of Martha Beck, who was my business partner at the time. Mm. And she was like, let me do a session with you. Mm. And we did a two hour session around the whole notion of I have to be in control in the hospital. Yeah. Why? Because if not, people die. People will die. Yep. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I have to be vigilant and on call for every little thing to go right. And if I don't, people will die. Mm -hmm. And she was challenging me on that. And of course, the big sort of epiphany that led to lots of tears and laughter was, oh, my God, what if maybe I'm not in charge of life and death? Maybe (laughs) God is in control in the hospital. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. But it's, I mean, we talk about doctors having a God complex, but like, mm-hmm. I really believed that, Yeah, that I had to be in control in the hospital because mm-hmm. if I messed up, really bad things happen. Mm-hmm. So you can see where that kind of wounding, how that can show up in the world and in my own system, that amount of pressure. I mean, I ended up by the time I was 27, I was in the ICU with cardiac problems with mm. my heart rate at 250 needing cardioversion. And by the time I was mm. 33, I was taking seven drugs oh for diseases that my doctors told me I would have to take for the rest of my life. And within two years of leaving the hospital, I was off all of them. Right. And all of those conditions were gone. So the body can't sustain that right. kind of pressure. So I was literally a wounded Unless healer. you're turned off, unless you're totally disconnected. But even then, like I said, the body is going to keep the score, to mm-hmm. quote Bethel van der Kolk, right? The mm-hmm. body keeps the score. The body Mm -hmm. says no, to quote Gabor Mate. Right. So my body was keeping score and saying no, even though I was emotionally kind of disconnected or intellectually disconnected from the reality that I'm not actually in control. Right. So, yeah, the wounded healer. I think the shadow of the wounded healer is that we are often like I said, attracted to healing work because of our wounds. Mm-hmm. And if that's unconscious, yeah. then we can actually really harm people yep. because we are treating from the wound. Yes. And Preach. We, we can cause all <laughs> kinds of mm-hmm. unconscious damage, perpetuating our own wounding. I see this all mm-hmm. the time in the coaching business. These are often very wounded people who aren't in therapy and didn't Mm -hmm. get the intensive training that a psychologist or a psychiatrist might have gotten for doing counseling work. And the advice that they're giving to people is coming from their own wound. It's Mm -hmm. potentially very destructive and they don't know how to work with trauma often. They've had no training in how to deal with, for example, dissociation or psychosis. So I see people sometimes sort of dissecting someone's psychic foundation without having any expertise in knowing how to be Mm -hmm. sensitive to the psyche's needs for stability. And I've wound up being the person that gets involved with Mm. irresponsible people who are messing with the psyche and don't really know what they're doing. So again, I mean, the reason therapists go through so much therapy as part of their training is in part to protect the clients. Well, I didn't. It was not required when I was in school and it's not required for any of my students right now. And it's a thing that in the field, I I hope we can make a change and and have that be a requirement again. And I tell my students, Mm -hmm. you must be in therapy. And the ones that look at me askew, I'm like, honey, please retire. This isn't going to work out for you. It's really important. And I think the most common pattern that I see in all healers 
And this isn't just healthcare providers or energy healers. It's also priests and other mm-hmm. people that are in kind of female lawyers have this pattern a lot where there's a kind of, I call it professional codependence. Yes. <laughs> and it's the same as what I'm calling the savior complex. Mm-hmm. It's this tendency to put the needs of others above the needs of one's self yeah. and self-neglect and deplete oneself in the name of, but I'm healing others. And it's extremely unhealthy. A healthy self knows I'll bring my doctors together when we come together and I'll say, okay, we're going to do a little exercise. We're going to sit here in a circle and we're only going to breathe out. We're going to see how long we can do that. Uh I'm going to set a timer. Let's see how long we can only breathe out. Right. And of course, Mm -hmm. everybody laughs because it's not very long. Right. And then the first moment one person takes a breath and then everybody starts giggling. I'm like, okay, now let's look at the metaphor of this in your life. How many of Mm -hmm. you are only breathing out? Mm -hmm. And you're wondering why you're suicidal, sick, miserable. Mm -hmm. Every cycle in every part of life requires the equal measure of inhale and exhale. Yes, yes. And some people are wounded in ways that make them only exhale. Mm-hmm. And some people are wounded in ways that make them only inhale. We call them narcissists. <laughs> yeah. And they know how to take care of their own needs, but they're not attuned to the mm-hmm. needs of others. So that to me is the fundamental work of the wounded healer. Mm. You said that so beautifully. <laughs> <laughs> well, to, to find that razor's edge. Yeah. That still point mm-hmm. where we're aware of our own needs, we're attuned to our own feelings, we can feel our bodies and give them what they need, but not in a, it's all about me, narcissistic, mm-hmm. self-absorbed way, mm-hmm. where we're also really, like, really breathing out in ways that are offering our gifts, our service, our expression, we're attuned to and caring about our communities and the people that we serve and our families and our loved ones. And then we breathe in and we take in what we need and we restore ourselves and we stand up for our needs and Mm -hmm. we say no and we set boundaries and all of those things that you learn in Codependence Anonymous. Uh In Al-Anon for me, it's I was thinking that's what we're trying to practice in Mm Al-Anon. That's the work. That's why I call it a kind of professional codependence. And Mm -hmm. it, it comes from boundary wounding. It's not our fault. Right. And narcissism comes from boundary wounding, too. It's just yep. two different coping strategies for the same kinds of wounds. Absolutely. And it's treatable. It's totally yes. treatable. So I want to say that. Yes. But yes. it is not easy. Right. Well, I'm conscious of time because I know you've got to get back to your writing. <laughs> But is there anything else that you wanted to share with listeners that we haven't already talked about? I mean, I feel like I could continue to talk to you for three more hours at least to get oh, all gosh. of the topics covered. But <laughs> but anything you want to share? I guess just highlighting that we do have this magical aspect of our being that is everybody's birthright. Mm-hmm. And nobody is spared this birthright. Like everybody Mm -hmm. gets this birthright and the ways in which we have forgotten that we have this birthright Mm -hmm. are creating so much devastation on the planet right now Mm -hmm. that I guess anytime I get a chance to remind people of this, I do. So I want to read a quote from Mark Nepo that I love. Yes. I love him too. We have one of his daily readers. To me, this is the inner pilot light. I start the daily flame book with this quote. Mm. Each person is born with an unencumbered spot, free of expectation and regret, free of ambition and embarrassment, free of fear and worry, an umbilical spot of grace where we were each first touched by God. 
It is the spot of grace that issues peace. Psychologists call this spot the psyche. Theologians call it the soul. Jung calls it the seat of the unconscious. Hindu masters call it Atman. Buddhists call it Dharma. Rilke calls it inwardness. Sufis call it called. And Jesus calls it the center of our love. To know this spot of inwardness is to know who we are, not by surface markers of identity, not by where we work or what we wear or how we like to be addressed, but by feeling our place in relation to the infinite and by inhabiting it. This is a hard, lifelong task for the nature of becoming is a constant filming over of where we begin, while the nature of being is a constant erosion of what is not essential. Each of us lives in the midst of this ongoing tension growing tarnished or covered over, only to be worn back to that incorruptible spot of grace at our core. When the film is worn through, we have moments of enlightenment, moments of wholeness, moments of satori as the Zen sages term it, moments of clear living when inner meets outer, moments of full integrity of being, moments of complete oneness. And whether the film is a veil of culture, of memory, of mental or religious training, of trauma or sophistication. The removal of that film and the restoration of that timeless spot of grace is the goal of all therapy and education. Regardless of subject matter, this is the only thing worth teaching, how to uncover that original center and how to live there once mm-hmm. it is restored. We call the filming over a deadening of heart and the process of return, whether brought about through suffering or love, is how we unlearn our way back to God. Mm. I love that quote so much. I, I wish I had written it, but yeah. it is such a beautiful description to me of pretty much everything that I teach. And the practice that is the fundamental practice of my spiritual life is mm-hmm. to surrender to that, to surrender yeah. to that, to surrender my personal will to that sort of greater will. And that's a deep practice that I teach in everything. I I have an online program called Connect to Your Inner Pilot Life that has Mm. an extended version of that practice, which I just facilitated at the Woodstock Group Healing because it's a deep healing practice. And people can find that at innerpilotlight.com. We've priced Mm -hmm. it on a sliding scale as low as $5 just so that pretty much anybody who needs it can learn how to connect to one's inner pilot light because it's so foundational for every aspect of healing, Mm -hmm. in my understanding, whether it's physical healing or trauma healing or cultural healing, collective Mm -hmm. healing. Absolutely. I'll close with that. (laughs) Wow. I just can't thank you enough. This has been such a joy. I can't wait to listen back to the episode and write all these things down that you said. And (laughs) I'm really excited for your next book to come out. Do you have any sort of idea when it might come out? Well, it's the hot book that everybody wants and I haven't sold it Mm -hmm. yet. So because it is such a Julian task, I, Mm -hmm. I keep feeling like, I don't know if I can pull this off. The book is definitely in charge and calling the shots. Hmm. So I've just been like obedient to this journey. And like I said, I almost quit. So I don't want to take any money or get on a deadline until I feel close enough. But I'm getting close. I'm Mm -hmm. getting close. I think I'll sell the book this year. Mm -hmm. And usually there's a one to two year lag between when you sign a book deal Mm. and when it shows up on bookstore shelves. Mm. Well, I will keep my eyes peeled. (laughs) (laughs) It's a monster. It's a monster to tackle. Mm. My fingers keep typing when I'm working on the book Mm -hmm. and writing sacred medicine. My fingers keep typing scared medicine. Like they transpose. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Like, oh, yes, I know you're scared. It's okay. You can do Mm -hmm. this. I have to give myself little pep talks. Wow. Well, just thank you. I'm just, I'm honored. I feel blessed. This has been lovely. Oh, thank you, Sarah. It was lovely to meet you. 
I hope that you enjoyed my interview with Lissa Rankin. Isn't she cool? Thanks as always to the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for the album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. To find more information about Lissa and about the podcast, you can go to our website at www.headhearttherapy.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.